I always have a high regard for James O'Dell and his love for the Lord and his family and the Word, but today it's off the charts appreciation form. I like his choice of outfits, don't you think so? <laughs> don't, don't ever hug me again like that. <laughs> I just, lay, I just uh, wear what Lori lays out, so uh, look in the mirror at some point during the day. Um, let me just uh, join Pastor Michael in my personal greetings to you if you're our guest uh, with us here today or watching on live stream. Uh, my name is Jim, and I sure hope to meet you as well after the service if you're here, and we'll be out in the lobby, and please, please uh, allow us to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit if this is your first time here. Uh, open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13, and also put some sort of a marker, you know the drill, put some sort of a marker in First Peter. We'll be going there often. As you turn there, let me just say uh, just one announcement. Um, we opened last week the sign-up for the next Membership Matters class. It'll be a three-week Sunday school class uh, with my wife and with me. And uh, it'll, be, it'll start February 5th, and then meet on the 12th, and then the 19th as well. You need to, uh, perfect attendance is definitely preferred. If you have to miss one, we'll work with you on a makeup class. And, uh, but uh, the sign-up for that remains open for another week or so, and you can sign up for the Membership Matters class at the information desk. We've had, we have a huge sign-up for this. It's pretty exciting. But we got room for more. And uh, going through the class doesn't mean you have to join our church. But if you ever desire to join a church, you will have had to have gone through this class. So um, uh, that membership class is open for you to register at this time. Well, like so many of you, I was born in Motown. I was born downtown Detroit at Hutzel Hospital and, and uh, have uh, grown. I, I grew up in the auto industry. My dad... I had two companies involved in the auto industry. One was a shop, one was a design company. And, and uh, had God not called me into ministry, I had a pretty good path into the auto industry as a career. And uh, it's just, I've just always been fascinated with it. So much so, I remember when I was younger in high school at my Christian school up in Clarkston, they, the news came out that they were going to offer a drafting class. I'm like, oh, I'm going to take that, because I'd already started into that a little bit with my dad's company in the summers. And, and then we had, it went over so well that the second year they, they were going to provide a class called Advanced Drafting, which is this detailed drawing. And, uh, and, and I just ate it up. I loved it. I loved it. And, and we decided to take a field trip as a drafting class. And uh, we did a field trip to one of the Pontiac auto plants, and uh, it's where they, if you remember the, 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 the car, the Fiero, it's where they were building uh, components or the body of the Fiero. And it was the perfect field trip for a class full of drafting students who were interested in the auto industry. And not only did we get to see them putting together the, the different components of, of the Fiero, but I remember we went into one room, and if you recall, the Fiero was built with, I think it was a fiberglass-type plastic or something shell, something like that. I don't remember the, the specifics. But it virtually could take a little hit and still not dent easily and still function. And we went into this one room on this field trip, and they had a Fiero, a red Fiero door in a bracket. And they had a bowling ball swinging like a pendulum in that room 
hitting that door over and over and over again to demonstrate that indeed how resilient that material was on the Fiero. And I remember watching, I'm like, this is really cool. They're really trying to hurt that car door, and they can't. And this is very impressive to me. I mean, it's just relentless, this smashing, and, and uh, they proved their point. But they also proved another point. I mean, it did leave marks after hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hits. It did leave an impression. It marked it up. One thing's for sure, after our class left that day from the field trip and we went back to our school, I promise you, they never took that Fiero door off the bracket and put it on a car and sold the car. I mean, the door was used to prove a point, but after the proving of the point, it would never be used again. You know, sometimes you and I feel like that Fiero door, don't we? We're taking a beating, and uh, because of the beating, we're for the most part useless. Useless to anyone else, useless to God. It's not so much what has pummeled us, but more so what we bring on ourselves. Our failures. Our sin. It's how we can wreak havoc in relationships. The ones closest to us. It's it's how we can wreak havoc with our circumstances. We indulge, we indulge, and we bring all of this Carnage into our life that affects others. It's all those private sins we indulge in. I mean, you and I get pummeled with what we bring on ourselves. And and if that weren't bad enough, everything that we introduce into our own lives that's sinful and destructive ultimately is against God. And we feel like that Fierro door. Boom! 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 Useless. We ask the question sometimes, confronted with our failures, will I ever be used again? I mean, I need to know. Is it possible to fall as low as I have? Listen and yet rise again to a place of usefulness? You've asked that question. You might be asking that question this morning. That's why I love Peter. Peter illustrates for me when I have these same questions. He illustrates for me what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13. There's no test. That's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Or even Peter himself will eventually write these words in an epistle we're going to study this spring. He will write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, Resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that, listen, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I mean, look, if you and I are here asking this morning, can I ever be useful to God again? Because everything I brought on myself and into other people's lives was ultimately against him. Will he ever want to look at me with eyes of acceptance 
and with plans for usability. Can I sink as low as I've sunk, yet rise again to usefulness? And if Peter's life is instructive to us, the answer is a resounding yes. You can be useful again. Your Savior comes for you for the thousandth time, as he does with Peter. Your Bible is open to John chapter 13. We're at the very beginning of the final evening of our Lord. He's observing the Passover in this setting from John chapter 13 through 17. But it's also in this setting, we can tell from the other Gospels, especially Luke, where we studied, that he is transforming for his followers the Passover meal into what we call the Lord's table. And it's after they leave this room called the upper room. In John 17, they'll be on their way to the garden where Jesus will be betrayed. We are just hours before the betrayal and the cross. John's telling this account in his gospel that bears his name. And he's being pretty honest with what happens. John gives us amazing details and he doesn't hold back. Listen, on the details about his colleague, his close friend. And before they had Christ in common, they had a fishing industry in common in Galilee. It's safe to say that John probably knew Peter most of his life. He knew him pre-Christ. He grew up with him, fished with him, came to Christ with him, and is now in the upper room with him. Peter's not telling the story about someone that he just knows of. This is his friend. He was in the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And by the time John's writing this gospel, understand this, Peter has been gone for 15 or 20 years. He had been martyred. Peter's not here to edit what John says. John, you forgot something. Or John, don't say that. Peter's, John's got nothing to lose and all the truth to tell. But he's not just going to tell about Peter's fall. He's going to tell you about Peter's rescue. It's the best part of the story. He's going to tell you about his rise. I had a history teacher in college, Dr. Panosian, who used to always say, if gold rusts, what shall iron do? You know, we tend to look at Peter and say, well, you know, I've seen pictures of him at the art museum and he's got a halo, he's so good. And I've seen a picture of him in the art museum, and there's a cloven tongue of fire on his head on the day of Pentecost. I mean, this, this guy was just, just had it made on visibility. And, but it does us good to see someone that we hold in such high regard struggle like we struggle. See, John's going to paint the picture of Peter, as one historian has said, or one historical personality has said he's going to paint him warts and all and now this morning you need to see Peter's fall and his rise 
Because you need to know this morning that you are not doomed to uselessness in the wake of your failures. You need to nail that down this morning by looking hard at Peter. Yeah, Peter, the one who would one day write these words in the epistle we're going to study. In 1 Peter 1.7, he's going to write that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter's saying, and he'll write it one day, your faith, the faith that God has given you, is indestructible. And it's your lowest times that will prove it. Peter is exhibit A. So I want you to track his fall and his rise this morning on that note sheet I've given to you by just remembering five R's. We'll use the letter R as our hook for not only the descent, but the rise. The first R, as you track with Peter, is the word resolve. Resolve. It starts at a high point for Peter. You know, as I was thinking through this, I... I, I remembered a, a, something that happened in Virginia Beach when my daughters were in college. My son was uh, probably 15, 16. He was in a, a tackle football league in the city of Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, he was tall. He would play wide receiver on offense and safety on defense. He was tall, he was fast, and he could jump out of the, this week and the next week. He, could just, he was a good football player. And... and uh, and his team was filled with uh, some good football players. Well, at the end of that season, he decided I want to tra- he wanted to transition over to basketball. And he, he got on a basketball team um, that did very well in the state of Virginia. And second place one year for homeschool teams. And they were beating Christian school teams. And his team was, it was just the perfect aligning of great athletes on that basketball team. Well... As it, went, as it went, they became close as a team. And during the off-season of basketball, the guys wanted to continue to play a sport together, so they, they enrolled in, in, in a, a flag football league in our city. And like I said, they were amazing athletes. They were whooping everyone. And I don't know, but the word got out to a local public school. I wrote down the name of the school. It's called Ocean Lakes school or public school and their varsity team was in the off season too and they had a football team um, in this league as well and they it was just a matter of time before my son's team had to play their team and it was towards the end of the season for the for the tournament championship I'll never forget this Ocean Lakes team had a great football team during the football season their quarterback was on this team and they had a Uh, just a great team normally, and they had the cream of the crop in this league. So our boys were like, oh, it's just another football game, and it's Ocean Lakes. Wow, this will be exciting. Hope they don't kill us. And we all got there, and then I'll never forget, they were out there warming up, and and then the Ocean Lakes team walks in, and it's like everyone got silent, and and they almost rose to their feet out of deference to them. It's like, oh, there's the Ocean Lakes team. And they walked in. They had a swagger to them. And they've earned it. They're a good football team. They had a swagger, and their, their, um, their, their head was in the air just a little bit, and their parents had a swagger. 
And uh, we're like, okay, whatever. It's just a game. And, and you know what happened during that game? Our motley crew of, of homeschool athletes took that team down to the wire. Tempers were starting to flare on the Ocean Lakes team. They were pushing our guys. We were having to break them up. And coaches were getting into it. I mean, it's just intense at the end of this game. And then our guys, I think it was an interception, got possession of the ball and then scored, and we won the game. And, and, and these guys had no swagger. They were angry walking out. They just left. The parents left too. I think our, their coach picked a fight with our coach, but we got between them. I mean, it was just a great time on a Saturday in Virginia Beach. And, <laughs> and then it was just like numbing, though. It's like, wow, here's this fantastic team in real life. And then these, this little motley crew of, of guys, good athletes, beat them. It was sweet because they were so exalted in their mind. But my goodness, did they ever crash. They said they were good. Just that day they weren't good enough. You know, Proverbs 20, verse 6, teaches a similar lesson. It says, many a man or many a person proclaims their own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man. It's one thing to talk about how good you are. It's another thing to show it. And this is where we find Peter in this first R, resolve. Because Peter's doing a lot of talking. Peter would often proclaim, no one's more loyal than me, but we as the reader are stepping back and saying, but who can find a real loyal person? Really? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to be it. I, I think you can see clearly Paul or Peter's resolve in three ways. First of all, Peter investigated the loyalty of others. He did. He was so impressed and so confident with his commitment that he measured other people's commitments. You're here in John chapter 13, just hours before the betrayal. That's important to remember. And look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He had just washed their feet, remember? He washed Judas's feet and Peter's feet and everyone else. And he says, Someone, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of, of which one he was speaking and there was, reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's John's way of saying, it was me. So Simon Peter gestured to him. Who's the him? John. John's remind, remembering this all too clearly. He looked to me in that moment and said to me, verse 24, ask him who it is of whom he's speaking. Who's going to betray him? And so he, or John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You say, well, this is John and Judas and, and Jesus here. Don't miss Peter here. Peter's like, wait a minute. You just washed our feet. And you just called us yet again to selfless service. You told us to be willing to wash each other's feet, to serve each other in humility. And then you're talking about dying again. 
And if that weren't enough, you're saying one of us in this room is going to betray you. Now, I know two people, it's not, Lord. Number one, it's not you. You're not going to betray yourself. Number two, it's definitely not me. So would you please tell me which of the 11 other guys it is? What is he doing? He's investigating the loyalty of others. But what else is Peter doing here? He's he's elevating himself above the others. You're going to see this in chapter 13. Go deeper into the evening. Verse 31. Therefore... When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. He's talking about the coming cross, the work of the cross. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews, but now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And here we go with Peter in the next verse. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, Peter. You you cannot follow me now, but you, you will follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I believe it's in Luke's gospel. He says, Lord, even if all these other guys around here deny you, I will not deny you. What's he doing? He's elevating himself above others. But I also see his resolve, thirdly, in this fact. On this night, just a short time after he said that, Peter engaged the enemy before others. We're in the garden, a few hours ahead. Look at chapter 18. Remember this? When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I am he, or literally, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these disciples go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He had just prayed that with them back in chapter 17 a few hours earlier. And look at verse 10. Of all the people. 
Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink of it? He engaged the enemy before everyone. And he wasn't trying, as John MacArthur says, he wasn't trying just to pick Malchus's ear off to warn the rest. He was swinging at the neck. Thankfully, Malchus was well-rested and quite alert, or Peter was just that bad of a shot. But we have to understand Peter's demonstrating resolve here. He measured the loyalty of other people to make sure they were up to par. What was par, Peter? And then he was always elevating himself above others, and then he was the first one to step out and engage the others, and he was expecting a full-on assault against the Roman cohort. Who's next? That was Peter. What a resolve. But you remember the lesson that you were taught as a child, don't you? The higher you climb, the farther you what? Fall. You say, well, let's see what happens with Peter. Well, stay on the R of resolve for a moment. I've been using Peter's name because that's what John's doing. But can we put our name in there? How hard are we with our words or with our time, or even in our heart. How hard are we on other Christians? Do you and I walk around, and either, if not out loud, in our hearts, measure their loyalty against ours and lose patience? Do you and I ever struggle with elevating ourselves above others and Maybe we even begin to believe the press, press headings, the press headlines. And when something comes along online or in a committee and, and people in this room are not just, me- they're not measuring up to my Christianity, I got to say something. And we're the first to engage the enemy, the perceived enemy. I wonder if we can relate to that. Suddenly it's like, are we still talking about Peter? Or is this about me? The lesson's the same for Peter and for you and for me. The higher you climb, the farther you fall. That's resolve. But we have to move to the next R. Remorse. Remorse. You're in John chapter 18. Remember this scene? We've been building to this all morning. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, that's John. Now that disciple, John, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper, and they let Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not, as he entered the high priest's courtyard. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. 
And the high priest then questioned Jesus and said, or, and questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in a temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And here we are in 25, with Peter. I last saw him in the courtyard. He's already disavowed any association and knowledge of Jesus. He was swinging a sword just a few minutes ago. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. He said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of, of all people, Malchus, the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, on this point, all give us one additional detail. They include his tears. He immediately left and wept bitterly. Tears. Remorse. You say, well, what, what would cause remorse like that? What would cause remorse? A couple of things, I believe, for Peter. First of all, you want to know what would cause remorse like that? It's the echo of his shallow resolve. Where he was always elevating himself above others, measuring others by himself, and he was on swinging the, the sword saying, let's go, guys. That echo of his shallow resolve was behind his tears of remorse. The very one, Peter, who was going to be the last one to deny Jesus was the first one and the only one. There was the echo of his shallow resolve where there was something else behind his tears. It was the smallness of this failed test. Have you ever noticed that? You and I can make all these promises to God and to others that we're going to change and and I'm going to change in big ways, and you're not going to recognize me, and things are just going to be different now, and it's the smallest of tests that trip us back up. That was Peter. You see, what was the smallness of the failed test? It wasn't a soldier asking him at spear point. It was a little servant girl. Pretty impressive, Peter. That held up well. What's behind his tears? The echo of his shallow resolve, the smallness of his failed test. And then we learn from gospel, the Gospel of Luke, there's a third thing behind his tears. It's the look from his denied Lord. Remember this? Luke records in Luke 22, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter in that moment. 
And Peter, Luke writes, remembered the word of the Lord just a few hours earlier. How he had told him before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. See, what's behind the remorse? That. With all his promises, he was so elevated. Now as high as he was in his own mind before, in position, in privilege, and commitment, he couldn't be any lower than he is. The only disciple to deny the Lord. Of those that didn't betray him, Judas by this point is off the scene. And Peter's the one who falls. He puts extra meaning in these words that Peter will one day write in his epistle we're going to study. He'll write in 1 Peter 5, 5, All of you, Better clothe yourselves with humility. Humility towards one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's basically going to be saying the rest of his life, I'm that guy who would flex in front of the mirror, in front of an audience of one, of my great might and commitment, and I was the one who went face down in the mud alone. It's remorse. Again, we've got to ask, so are we still talking about Peter here? The thing that discourages you the most in your marriage or in your private walk or in your ministry is the echo of your own shallow resolve. The smallest of the tests that trips you back up And then the awareness that I've denied the one. I've denied association with the one who loves me so. But here's something really cool. Peter's fall and your fall is not final as a believer. You believe that? Proverbs 24, 16 reminds us, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And that brings us to the third, our reconciliation. Reconciliation. You see, this deal's going to get fixed? Oh yeah, big time. You say, is Peter going to initiate this reconciliation? No. Say, what do you mean? A couple observations. Peter, according to the gospel writers here, John in particular, in John chapter 20, it's not Peter who goes and reconciles himself with Jesus. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. So what had happened? What happened? What did Peter do? So the disciples, including Peter, went away again to their own homes. To their own homes. Peter ran to the tomb, but no one was there to be reconciled with. So he went back to his house. But there's a second observation I'd like to make. If it wasn't Peter who initiated this reconciliation, listen, with the one who had betrayed him, who did? The one who was, the one who was left hanging in the courtyard by Peter. The very one who comes to reconcile with Peter is Jesus himself. What mercy, what grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I read these words. Just listen, verses 3 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you first, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then, listen, to the twelve. Now, there weren't 12 left at that point. Judas is gone. But it was the identity of the group as the 12. See, what happened here? Well, Jesus would show himself to all the disciples several times, four, five, six times perhaps, before his final ascension. But before those meetings happened with the 12, the group of apostles, Jesus had an appointment to keep with Peter. As we saw when we looked through, when we worked through Luke in our series in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, we find that Peter is the one that is sought. At some point in the last three years, Peter had heard Jesus tell a story, probably on more than one occasion. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. It's a story of a, sheep, of a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one goes astray. And how Jesus, the shepherd, would leave the 99 to go find the one and bring it back with great rejoicing. That's not an evangelism text in that context of Matthew 18. It's talking about believers. And Peter is learning right now, right now, that it's Peter who is the sheep. He's the one that's gone off. And the footsteps he hears coming behind him are the shepherd. It's the shepherd, the one who should be most put off, the one that was most sinned against, is the one coming to restore the relationship. That's why Peter... It's meaningful when he writes these words in the future, in the epistle we're going to study. 1 Peter 2.25, he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Wow. Why are you writing that, Peter? He says, because I did that. That was my story. He came for me when I didn't deserve it. And isn't it true in your human relationships, and surely it's true in your heart, at the heart level with your relationship with God, 
reconciliation always creates a stronger relationship than prior to the offense, a deeper relationship. And that brings us to the fourth R. And turning your Bibles to John chapter 21 for this one. The fourth R is the word restoration. We're back on the upswing. And as we read these verses in John chapter 21, I need you to remember something, okay? I need you to remember that this is happening in front of the other ten disciples. Judas is gone. Jesus is going to narrow it down, his conversation to Peter. And the other ten, the other ten that Peter wasn't impressed with their commitment. The other ten that said, hey, we're going to do everything Peter does. If he's that committed, we'll be that committed. The other ten who didn't deny Jesus, all this is happening in front of them. This restoration. When we come to John chapter 21, as we bring the gospel accounts together for the the full chronology, the full picture, this is probably either the fourth or the fifth appearance that we know of where Peter's been present. And look at, uh, I want you to read verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, elbowed Peter, said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garments on, for he was stripped for work. And threw himself into the sea. That's, that's Peter. I'm just going to walk on the water. Is that, if that's not working today, I'll swim. I'm just, he's the first one in. But the other disciples came in the little boat, and they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire ready, already laid and fish placed on it. And bread, and Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 actually. And, and although there were so many, for some reason, the nets were not torn. What a story. What a story. Now, sadly, some people get hung up in the first 11 verses and they want to debate a couple things. And they don't, they don't get the meat out of the passage. They're like, um, first of all, Was Peter quitting being a disciple because he said, I want to go fishing? No, no. As you bring the gospel accounts together, Jesus had told his disciples to go to Galilee and wait for him. Where are they here? Galilee. What are they doing? Waiting for him. 
The only thing they knew to do was, well, I know how to fish. We got to eat. So I don't hold that Peter was on, his ver- on the verge of totally throwing it all away at all. But there's another item of debate that's coming up in this text that we're going to get to in just a moment. This is his restoration in front of the other disciples. And there are some realities you just can't miss, too, to be exact. Number one, the renewal of construction. You see, after all that Peter's done, after all he claimed, after how deep he, deeply he fell, and even now that there's been reconciliation, would it just be there, we're on speaking terms again, Lord? And in essence, the Lord's going to say to him, oh, no, no, no. We're going to resume the construction process I started with you. You're my disciple. I'm going back to work on you. The renewal of the construction. These disciples are eating breakfast. And Jesus, once again, singles out Peter in front of them and goes back to work on him. They have breakfast, verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now people want to debate that. They're like, okay. Does he love Jesus more than these? What's the these? The fish? Is he really going back to it as a job? As a calling? Uh, as a vocation? Uh, I don't think that's what the these is all about. Some people say, well, the these are the disciples. And that's a little closer. See, in what sense? Well, some people say, well, do you love me more than, than you love these guys that you've gotten close with with the last three years? I don't think that's the right interpretation because he's with them still. Um, so it's not the fish, it's not the disciples, or is it? Because there's a third possibility that I think is right. Do you love me, Peter, more than these disciples love me? Because you just said that before the cross. That you loved me more than them. Look what's happened. The question itself would bring great conviction. He says, do you love me more than these love me, Peter? Really? Can you hear that now? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had to ask him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. What's going on in this restoration? Not only is he renewing the construction process on Peter, but he's given Peter an opportunity to reaffirm his resolve of commitment to him in front of these disciples. The same disciples in front of whom he had affirmed he was undying in his loyalty, and then he died in his loyalty. And asking him three times, gave him three times to reply in contrast to the three denials he had publicly made. Now, a lot of people want to preach whole sermon series on, well, there's a difference, there's a play on the words here between phileo, Peter's always answering with phileo, and Jesus is asking at least the first couple of times, agape. Agape is a stronger form, Peter's uh, using a lesser form, and then Jesus finally will use Peter's word, phileo. 
And what does that mean? And I think there's a nuance there to be uh, addressed that I will in just a moment. But overall, if that's all we're wanting to do is to debate the two different Greek words, we're missing what's going on here. He's giving him the, the opportunity to reaffirm his resolve. But there's a humility to Peter now. There's a humility because he refuses to use that, what could be a nuanced, stronger word for love. Sometimes these two words are used interchangeably in the, in the Greek as well. But I find it interesting that Peter won't, won't let go of that one word. Phileo. It's like, Lord, I've, I've, I've claimed the highest form of commitment to you before, and I failed. I'm still declaring high commitment to you, but I've got to leave room to grow. It's a possibility. My dad always used to tell me, when I was a, a young teenager, and he'd talk to me about business and stuff like that, and how his company was doing that year, and, and he says, yeah, in our little circle of competitors, he says, we always hover right around number two in, in, in jobs that are received and, and in the rankings. And he says, I like it there. He says, because if you're number one, there's only one way you can go. But if you're number two, there's always room for improvement. That's never... It's never left me. And I don't believe it left Peter either because one day he would write in the epistle we're going to study these words in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. He says, I was that guy. I was that guy. That's 1 Peter 3.15 and 5.10. This is restoration. Jesus went back to work on him and gave him an opportunity to affirm his love and now there's a newfound humility to it. But there's one hour left and we're done. And it's recommission. Recommission. This is happening, listen, in front of the other ten. I mean, we believe this around here at Calvary Baptist Church, that a growing Christian is a moving Christian. And Jesus is going to tell Peter right now, you're back on the rails, get moving. We have work to do. You say, well, what is he telling Peter to do? I would think it's the same thing he's telling us to do. When we come back, when he rescues us from our crashes, first of all, remember your stewardship. Remember your stewardship. I've given you responsibility that you're going to answer for. Get back at it, Peter. He says three times, feed and tend my sheep. These sheep aren't yours, they're mine. Tend them, feed them, lead them, protect them. Remember your stewardship, Dad. Remember your stewardship, wife, husband, teenager, Remember your stewardship. Get back to work. Do not be paralyzed. Listen, by your own failure, Jesus wouldn't let Peter sit paralyzed. And you haven't failed at that level. So there's a recommission going on here. Remember your stewardship, and then secondly, take the initiative. He says, tend and feed. Tend and feed. Sheep don't do that to themselves. You must move towards those you are to minister to. 
Peter did. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks from now, from this point, he's going to gather more sheep. God's going to use him to open the door of the kingdom, if you will, to the Jews who accept Jesus. And there's going to be a lot of sheep to take care of. And Peter will be right in the middle of that. Maybe that's why Peter will write one day in the epistle we're going to study these words from 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Get back to work. Take the initiative and get busy. So I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be a deacon or an elder or whatever. Well, listen, but you are called and you have work to do in the context of the body of Christ. That's why Peter's going to press down really hard in that epistle we're going to study together. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. This is called recommission. This is John's story of Peter. Peter's been gone now over a decade to martyrdom by the time John writes this. But John, in essence, is saying, this is my colleague. This is, this is my friend. This is his story. You've watched his fall and rise. So my question is, which R do you find yourself living in this morning? Are you still on the, the, the resolve at the beginning where everyone just needs to be measured against your standard? Because if that's the R where you are right now, yeah, it's not going to go well for you very soon. Are you in the second R? Remorse? It's a good thing to grieve. Brokenness is the beginning of healing. When you mourn the propensity of your failing heart and you hunger and thirst for a righteousness outside of yourself, that sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Tears are a gift. Are you in that middle R? Reconciliation? You just can't believe how how high you were in your own mind, and then you fell so low, yet he comes for you. And those songs that you sing and those verses you read bring tears to your ears and at first you, or to your eyes, and at first you can't believe, but you turn and he's there as your shepherd. He said, I told you I'd come. I came for you. Has he given you an opportunity of restoration? It's probably going to be humbling in front of others. That's a good thing. I have good news for all of us. Wherever we are, there is always a recommission. Let's get busy again. Christ busy on you, you busy in his work by his grace. I know one thing. Mm, I know one thing. As a Christian, no matter how far you've fallen, you are not done. You are not unusable 
to Jesus. And because the faith you have in him is a gift he's given to you, you are not discarded. And Peter will write about this one day in the epistle, repeat after me, that we're going to study together. He opens his epistle with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. It will not fade away and it's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So I say to you, brothers and sisters and friends, we've watched the fall and the rise of Peter this morning. But I say to you, don't look now. But those footsteps you've been hearing behind you, those are, those are the footsteps of your shepherd. He's coming for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescue. We thank you again for the, this account of Peter. It's been difficult to watch. It's been painful, actually. Not just because of what he went through by his own doing, but it looked a little too familiar. But Lord, as we've seen his fall and his rise, it's focused the lens of our hearts on your amazing mercy and grace to us. And we sing of that mercy now. If there's anyone here who's never accepted you as their Savior and your Lord, I pray they'll talk to us this morning, after the service. Come talk to me. Talk to anyone they've seen on stage here, Pastor Michael, our wives. We'd love to introduce you with an open Bible to this great shepherd that will not only save you from your sin that's separating you from God and make you his own child, but even as his own child when you go astray, He's going to come for you. My question, my friend, is can you think of a better setup than that for the rest of your life? Come to Christ. And those who are my brother and sister in Christ, Lord, I pray that they will find hope today that you're not done with them. There's rescue. In Jesus' name we pray.